Welcome to the Mighty Radio Program. How's about how foggy and kind of, you know, spooky the city was this morning? The clouds have kind of uh, pulled back a little bit, at least the fog has. Well, you know what this show is? Uh, this this show today, I for the next hour, if anyone deigns to, to defame me or call anything I say into question, and I don't like it, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'll sue you! That is right. It is the I'll sue you hour here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto, the Alan Carter radio program. And we're going to begin at Queen's Park, where just a little while ago, the premier stood up in the house what, and and he said this, it welcoming a, a certain special somebody. First introduction I've ever had, and it's so appropriate. My lovely mother came down to pay us a visit. And Ms. You think I'm tough to handle, Mr. Speaker? Wait till she gets going. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Doug Ford in the house there, introducing his mom, Diane, uh, matriarch, obviously, and uh, has a lot of political weight, pulls a lot of political weight. You remember that Doug Ford, when he announced his candidacy to become the leader of the progressive conservatives on his way to becoming premier, where'd he do it? He did it in his mom's basement. Yeah, that's the kind of power. You want... You want to uh, to be a bigwig in provincial politics in the uh, Tory party and the PC party? I tell you what you do is you kiss the ring. You kiss you Diane's You know nothing, Jon Snow. Look, oh, okay, come on. I, you agree? I know a couple of things, and here's one thing that I know, uh, is there's a lot of people out there worried about their bums this morning. And this is why. Uh, because you may have heard this news over uh, the last couple of days, uh, late last week, there was a report that said that the Ford government was going to stop uh, uh, allowing for sedation, stop funding sedation for colonoscopies. Uh, and where are my homies at? Where are my mid-50s uh, bros out there? Because you know, you I, I've had this thing done. Um, and I liked the anesthetic. I liked it a lot. I asked for some to go. I asked for a baggie to take home. They didn't give me one, but I enjoyed it. And I was with my dad this weekend. He's 78 years old, just turned 78. Congratulations, dad. And he said, he said to me, I guess I'm going to skip the next one. I'm, I'm, I'm due for another one of those bum things coming up and I, I ain't going in if there ain't no drugs. That is, that is actually not how my father talks. But I want to now play for you what happened in the House today, because if you have heard this and you think to yourself, like my father, I am not going to go for that checkup, please go for the checkup, go for the go for the thing, because here is now the Minister of Health, Christine Elliott, responding to a question in the House about anesthetic for colonoscopies. That specific uh, policy has not moved forward. It was based on, the report was based on some old and outdated information. That specific diagnosis was ruled out. That that was not going to be happening. The full anesthetic requirements that were necessary would be continued under that particular procedure. So the reports, of course... Uh, and the resulting reaction overblown. I, you know, I don't mean to call into question the uh, reporting because, as you heard the minister say, these reports were actually accurate. It's just that the government is now saying, well, no, that was outdated information and not correct. And you can indeed get some drugs for your bum. 
Look at the. Can I say bum on the air? How many more times can I say it before the CRTC calls? Another ten times. And Rob is uh, weighing in here. Apparently, he is uh, standards and practices for this radio station. You know how many times I can say bum? Actually, I think it's unlimited. Is it unlimited? Unlimited bum. Bum is okay. Bum. Yes, Rebecca. Okay. Rebecca now weighing in. Bum is good. Good. You can change for it up bum. by saying behind. I derriere. You know what? You know. Um, you know what your derriere is made of. Premier? Everything is made of carbon. Everything is going up. That's right. Well, your bum is not going up uh, because as you age, you know, your bum only goes in one direction. And I, I know down. this. I, yeah, gravity. Thank you, Rob, who turned, I believe, 22 last week with the rest of the kids that work in this radio station. I tell you, Grandpa over here. Uh, how's, about, um, how's about a cocktail or two? Maybe, maybe something, you know. The Ford government uh, now announcing that, uh, or at least hinting. All right, who's ready for a little tailgate? That's right, a little tailgate. I'm re- all right. I'm ready for some tailgating because you know nothing says reasonable uh, liquor laws more than uh, if you're by your car uh, and sitting on the bumper of your car. Please have another beer. I'll oh. sue you. Yeah, but the kids. Of all those kids at Trinity Bellwoods Park with their bicycles and their fixies. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you have a cocktail in the park? That's a $250 fine. No, but Buddy over here going to see, you know, the Argos. Yeah, he's got a G&T and some ribs. That's fine. That's good. It's okay if you have a grill. See, those hipsters yeah, don't have a grill. No grill. No booze. The government will announce in the budget this week. This is according to the Canadian press who is kind of ripping this from the sun. This was a sun exclusive this morning. That the government will announce in its budget this week it's going to legalize the practice that is often seen in parking lots at sporting events in the United States. The executive director of strategic communications actually tweeting that the uh, change means the government will treat adults like adults. Tailgating will be made possible by amending a regulation that sets out the terms for special occasion liquor permits. And permit holders would also be able to sell alcohol on their property. And here's where I take some... I take some exception to the Canadian press report because did you hear that part? Now here's two more sentences. The news comes after thousands of teachers and supporters descended on the legislature over the weekend to protest education changes, including larger high school class sizes. What the what is what the devil does the two things have to do with each other? Nothing. So let's get back to this whole Toronto Sun thing. So uh, the idea here is that you're going to be able to booze on the back of your car. Remember the Argos tried this and it didn't work because the lineups for booze was ridiculous. It just it didn't have the same kind of vibe. But I think there's going to be a lot of questions about that. And we're going to hear more about it uh, in the budget, which, of course, is coming up on Thursday. And we've got a big budget for show for you on Thursday. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sad to say that this Thursday will be perhaps the first time in 10 years, in 10 consecutive years, that I have not been in the budget lockup. And I'm going to tell you about the budget lockup on Thursday in more detail, but all I'll say is I'm going to miss having the OPP walk me to the bathroom. You know nothing, Jon Snow. No, I will miss it. I will. A Ford email, a Ford email came into my inbox today. I don't know if you got this one. I'm signed up for the Ford um, email blast for fundraising, and I want to read this one because it's good. Alan, I don't know if you get to follow the headlines, but this is bogus. This is uh, Doug Ford writing to me, email. The journalists are out there mocking us. Regular folks who tried to save a few bucks on gas by filling up before the carbon tax kicked in 
Maybe these guys don't care about what gas costs them, but I know how much it matters. It's journalists and politicians like these who make it tough for the little guy. They don't understand there's a whole world out there filled with folks just trying to get by. I'm going to keep fighting for the I'm going to keep fighting the carbon tax, Alan. This is the email from uh, Doug Ford this morning. We're taking it all the way to the Supreme Court if we have to. Ontario can't afford to get hit by this. Click right here and pitch in a buck to fight against the carbon tax. Well, seeing that you just told me that I'm mocking you as a journalist, I don't you're not getting my loony, dude. I'm sorry. It is not happening. Let's quickly move on to uh, Andrew Scheer, if we might. Uh, Andrew Scheer saying to Justin Trudeau, This is a blatant attempt to use, and some would say misuse, threats of legal action to stop me from fulfilling my constitutional duty as leader of the opposition to hold the government of the day to account on behalf of all Canadians. So, uh, it is a further sorry, attempt sorry, Andy. to silence those who stand up to Justin Trudeau and who seek the truth. How's about the dimples on that guy? I'm just going to mention that. But uh, here is, this is, of course, the revelation this weekend that uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, Justin Trudeau is uh, threatening to sue. I'll sue you! Yes, trying to, uh, threatening to sue Andrew Shear, and Andrew Shear's response is... So sue me! Exactly. So sue me, dude! When we come back on the Mighty Alan Carter radio program, we are going to be talking about whether or not... The city of Toronto or any other municipalities in this province should be allowed and should take contractors, non-union contractors. Because up until now, there have been collective agreements that mean that Toronto, for example, if it wants to get anything built, it's got to go the union route. Well, the Ford government has changed that. What does that mean for unions? What does that mean for taxpayers? What does it mean for workers? You're listening to the Mighty Alan Carter Radio Program on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to the uh, Mighty Alan Carter Radio Program. I am um, normally just a news anchor, just a guy who reads the news. That's not true. I'm, I'm a broadcast professional, uh, but an anchor guy. I work in TV, so this radio thing is a little bit new to me. And for the last couple of weeks, Rebecca, my producer, has been saying, listen, uh, if we have a guest on and you don't know what their name is or the title is, it's up there on the board. And I, okay, fine. Uh, and I didn't, until this very moment, I didn't know what she's talking about. And you know it, nothing, Jon Snow. I know nothing. She pointed up, there is a giant, what is that, like a 42-inch television uh, just above my head with the name of the person that I'm interviewing. So there's the board. So there you go. Learning something new every day. Uh, you may have heard of Bill 66. It's no longer Bill 66. It is actually now received royal assent. It is the law of this province. It's called the Restoring Ontario's Competitiveness Act. And what it does is it touches a whole number of different ministries. It changes a whole bunch of different things. And you may have heard a lot of discussion about Bill 66 when it was still a bill before it became an act. But I want to talk about one particular part of restoring Ontario's Competitiveness Act, which is, it doesn't really roll off the tongue. Uh, this is Schedule 9, and it, uh, it, it touches the Ministry of Labor. Here's the portion I want to read. Uh, the schedule amends the Labor Relations Act to deem municipalities and certain other entities to be non-construction employers. Trade unions that represent employees of these employers who are employed or may be employed in the construction industry, here's the key, no longer represent those employees. And this is the next big one. Any collective agreement binding the employer and the trade union ceases to apply 
insofar as it applies to the construction industry. Now, the construction industry has been pushing for this for a long time. For example, here's a press release from the Ontario Sewer and Waterman Construction Association uh, at the, after the passage of Bill 66 to become an act, and they quote a think tank that says Ontario municipalities could expect to save more than $370 million if all publicly funded construction and infrastructure projects were open to fair and open bidding process. In other words, municipalities not tied to unions and not tied to those in the collective agreement. However, there is a loophole and an opt-out. And that is where my next guest comes in. And here I'll look up the big board. Sean Reed, VP and Regional Director for Ontario from the Progressive Contractors Association of Canada. Sean, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks, Alan, and I'm delighted that my name is finally up in lights. Uh, I've really made it now. Yeah, you really, the thing is, it won't last long. Uh, you get a couple of minutes and somebody else. I uh, See, I have up next already. You're already, you're moving up. Uh, but I want to talk about this loophole, and uh, we asked a number of Toronto City Councillors to join us on the phone, and unfortunately they were all busy. But so there is a loophole here where councillors can vote, uh, city council can vote to opt out. Do I understand that correctly? Yeah, they, they have, basically what the Bill 66 has done is the, the Ford government's given uh, these municipalities that had these restrictive um, regimes in place, um, they've, they, they basically they will be automatically deemed open, but there is this sort of three-month period where if for some reason the municipality, one of these municipalities chooses to remain uh, restricted to only a fraction of the construction workforce, um, um, they technically have that, that option to do so in this, in this next three, three months. Period. Just for the three months, or, or would, would it continue on after well, they, that? They, they, what, what has to happen is they would have to indicate, the, 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 the municipality would have to formally indicate to the Ministry of Labor that they wish to remain a restricted construction entity or uh, or uh, deemed a construction employer and the, the um, civic government has the right to do that and, and say well, i opt on, out of this portion that, of bill 66 that's, what, that's right that's what the law allows them over they have a three-month period to make that call and uh and then if they if that if that three months it goes expires it, it goes past then uh they remain open so they so obviously what we're asking for these municipalities to do and especially for the city of toronto is to do nothing uh, is to let that three-month window pass so that Toronto uh, will re- will be a, an open jurisdiction for all construction workers from now on. There were questions in the House from the NDP about this, uh, actually even today. Uh, I mentioned that we tried to get in touch with and tried to get uh, Toronto councillors on the line, but uh, unfortunately they are in a health board meeting, many of them, so unable mm-hmm. to join. But I do want to quote, and this is from the CBC, this is uh, quoting Mike York, who is the president of the Carpenters District Council of Ontario, mm-hmm. that the union is concerned for its members, disappointed in the provincial government, uh, and they said that uh, workers' pensions, benefit plans, standards of work, uh, wages, the bill will use, be used to rip up workers' collective agreements. Is that your understanding that collective agreements are in danger here? That's um, a lot of hyperbole on the part of Mr. York. Um, this, what, what will happen? First of all, to put this in context, there's about 150,000 construction workers in the GTA. 
uh, only a fraction today under the uh, under the previous uh, uh, setup um, because of the close because of the closed tendering at, at, at Toronto City City Hall. Uh, only a fraction of those 150,000 workers were actually allowed to work because they were members of, of particular labor unions. This is not about all labor unions. Uh, this is actually only a, f- a, num- a certain number of trade unions were allowed to do all the work at City Hall. Everybody else, other other unionized workers and non-unionized, non-unionized workers were excluded about that's about 75% uh, as high as 75% of all construction workers who are qualified to do that work were excluded because they weren't members of the right union um so this is what this what bill 66 does is it allows for all qualified tradespeople to work on these projects regardless of whether or not they happen to be affiliated with a particular trade union or not they simply need to be qualified to do the work and the other thing i'll say is just just on this is um you know before city of hamilton is also dealing with this before that happened before that they became a restricted regime they had a fair wage schedule uh, already in place toronto's had a fair wage schedule this is not about dealing with you know uh, this is not about fair wages or or lower rates or anything like that all that's fine this is simply about allowing People who are paying taxes into their city, who are qualified to do the work, to do the work, regardless of which organization they happen to be affiliated with. Sean Reed is the uh, Vice President Regional Director for Ontario, the Progressive Contractors Association of Canada, which is urging the City of Toronto and other municipalities not to opt out of this uh, Bill 66, which of course is now actually law. Sean, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Let's move on to uh, another big story today, and you've heard me talk about this already. All right, who's ready for a little tailgate? I'm ready for some tailgating. Here's Travis Danraj. Travis, have you cracked a cold one yet? <laughs> I, I have not. It's work hours, Alan. Well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I, I, I think of covering Queen's Park as kind of a sporting event, so why there, not? There you go. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, Todd Smith basically confirmed the story today, saying we'll find out more details in Thursday's budget, but... Essentially, yes, tailgating is going to be uh, legal in the uh, province of Ontario soon, which means that you'll be able to drink beer, uh, whatever you like, right next to your vehicle before sporting games. Did anybody ask him about, you know, you, you can't have an open, there's no open container laws in parks where, you know, kids got, you know, not kids, but people of uh, majority, uh, over 19 years of old, have, you know, bikes and no vehicles and they can't drink there. How does that make sense? Yeah, so he says more details are going. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot that doesn't make sense when it comes to this, but uh, he says that we'll find out more details. Uh, tailgating is going to be made possible by amending a regulation that sets out terms for the special uh, occasion liquor permits, so for special events and things like that. So basically, MLSE will have to apply for a permit, and then there will be a set area where the tailgate can happen. And permit holders will also be able to sell alcohol on their property, so you could, uh, you know, have a, a beer tent or something like that in the parking lot as well. Oh, sweet dude! Uh, come on over to uh, my place this summer. I, I got I got a beer tent set up, uh, and I'll be charging. Is, is that? Is, did anybody ask him about that, or is it only corporations? So, so uh, I, I think it's just corporations. But again, he he, you know, I don't think that the government really. Um, wanted to confirm this today, but then uh, a staffer in Ford's office actually put out a tweet confirming a story that was in the Sun, 
And so then they had to go and, 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 and put some details out, but they haven't put everything out yet. Um, but, you know, Todd Smith was asked a, a question in the scrum, uh, basically about, is this the government's priorities? Don't they have other priorities in their health care and their education that they should be talking about right now? Why are you guys putting out this story about tailgating? They said, well, yeah, those are our priorities for sure, but, you know, people want to tailgate. And we said, well, who wants to tailgate? <laughs> people told you this? And he said, yes. Um, folks have told the government that this is a priority for them, so it will be a priority for the Ford government on Thursday as well. Well, you know what Justin Trudeau would say to that? I'll sue you! That's what he would say. Travis Danraj is Global's <laughs> Queens Park Bureau Chief uh, and has not, I repeat, has not begun drinking yet. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Travis. I appreciate you being here. When we come back on the Mighty Alan Carter Radio Program, uh, breaking news from courts with a guilty plea. Catherine McDonald, the award-winning Catherine McDonald, our Global News crime specialist, is with us after the break. This is Global News Radio 640 Toronto. We have breaking news from the courts this morning where a Toronto neurosurgeon accused of killing his physician wife has pleaded guilty to second-degree murder in her death. Mohammed Shamji had been charged with first-degree murder in the 2016 death of Elena Frick Shamji, his wife of 12 years and the mother of his three children. He entered that guilty plea in a Toronto courthouse this morning, just days before his trial was set to begin. Frick Shamji, a family doctor at Scarborough and Rouge Hospital, was last seen on November 30th of 2016. Her mother had contacted police to report her missing. Her beaten body was found in a suitcase by the side of the road of Toronto the following day. Shamji, who worked at Toronto Western, was a faculty member at the University of Toronto. He was arrested a day later. Police have said an investigation revealed Frick Shamji died of strangulation and blunt force trauma. Our crime specialist, Catherine McDonald, has been covering this story since it began. She was at court today. She joins me on the line. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Alan. Tough day, obviously, for the family. What kind of reaction did we have outside of court? Well, inside court, we heard uh, this is obviously was quite unexpected. Just last week, I was in court hearing that they were going to be selecting a jury. Uh, they were talking of Wednesday of this week and then starting the trial after that. They were talking about getting a larger courtroom. And they were also talking about the fact that uh, the couple's eldest daughter was going to be a witness. And she was going to be testifying uh, via video from another room in the courthouse, which just the thought of it made me upset to think that uh, this little girl who witnessed, uh, or who, I'll tell you how she witnessed it, according to the facts, on the night of November 30th, 2016, the couple who had got into an argument in their bedroom while the three children were sleeping in the family home. Now, we heard that for the six months prior, uh, Elena Frickshamji had told her husband she was uh, going to start divorce proceedings, uh, and he resisted. He pleaded with her for reconciliation, and he said, I, I will get better. I will get better in the marriage. She agreed, and she would abandon divorce proceedings. But on just two days before they had this fight in the bedroom, she actually formally began divorce proceedings. He was served with the divorce papers. And on that evening, that 11-year-old daughter was awakened from her sleep by sounds of her parents arguing in the next room. She heard banging, her mom screamed, then silence. And according to the facts, um, he then struck Elena multiple times, causing her significant blunt force injuries all over her body, including a broken neck and broken ribs. And then he choked her to death. That 11-year-old went into her parents' room to investigate she was ordered back to bed by her father, and she was going to be testifying today. That 11-year-old, who's now 14, and her 12-year-old sister were in court 
I'm told this is the first time that they've seen their father since his arrest in November 2016, or actually beginning of December 2016. And uh, after he pleaded guilty to second-degree murder, uh, all of a sudden a bunch of detectives uh, ran and swarmed someone in the second row. It was the 12-year-old. She started to cry. She was uh, taken out of court. Uh, and I, one of my colleagues went out and said she was sitting on a bench and they were hugging her. Very emotional for these children who have lost their mother and now have to face the fact that their father, who was accused of killing her, has admitted to it. So uh, the family, uh, the mother of Dr. Elena Frick-Shamji was here. Uh, the mother now lives in Windsor. These children who all, two of the three of them attended Toronto French School, they um, they all came to Toronto for this uh, proceeding. The mother uh, of Elena Frick-Shamji said there will be no justice. We will never get our daughter back, but they are satisfied that he's pleaded guilty to second degree, even though, of course, now the question is, when will he be eligible for parole? Um, the family says, you know, first degree is very hard to uh, to prove. Of course, they, the Crown would have had to prove that he had planned and deliberated the murder. Uh, a second degree is a sure thing. And now they're going to hope that um, after a sentencing hearing, a judge will give him a very long period of parole ineligibility. Second degree murder is automatic life sentence. The question is, he could be eligible for parole anywhere between 10 and 25 years. So the Crown hopefully will be pushing for a lengthy uh, period before he can uh, apply for parole. Catherine, you know, just makes your stomach churn hearing you describe what those kids have been through and what they were going through even today uh, and the possibility of that young that young teenager having to be on the stand to actually testify. We have seen in the past that, um, you know, pleading prior to a trial can bring uh, some leniency in parole eligibility. Do you believe that's in play here? Well, the facts are that he actually tried to cover up the murder. That came out in the facts, uh, you know, and that is an aggravating factor here. It says in the days after he killed uh, Elena Frick-Shamji, of course, you may remember, he, he, he put her in a suitcase and dumped her in the Humber River up in Kleinberg. Someone happened to find that suitcase. I remember interviewing the man who came upon it. And it, it just got hung up on the, on the shore of the Humber River, thankfully. Uh, and uh, in the days after that, he, it says here, Muhammad carried on with his daily routines, including performing surgeries the next day. He lied to just about everyone he came into contact with as his missing wife's whereabouts. The deception included the planting of evidence, phone messages calculated to point the finger at his wife's lover and covering his own tracks. Because we, we learned that, and we heard this back at the time from her associates, that she was planning to leave Dr. Mohammed Shamji, and she was having an affair, and she was with another family doctor. But what's so aggravating here is he didn't just kill her, but he 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 also uh, took her body, he dumped it, and then he went he went about his daily routine and tried to cover it up. And he was going to try and pin this on someone else. So clearly, uh, in this case, the Crown is going to say that this is a man who, um, even though he didn't plead to first degree, he was uh, he planned it, and he he had no he 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 was actually arrested. He didn't. Uh, surrendered to police. The question is, had they not found that suitcase, how long would this have gone on before they, they uh, you know, might have found out exactly what happened to this poor woman? What do we know about uh, sentencing and timing going forward? So the sentence is set for May the 8th. This is going to be, uh, like uh, many of these sentencing hearings, it's going to be a very emotional uh, process where we hear victim impact statements from everyone who's affected uh, there are dozens of people who have been coming to court, friends and family, uh, who wear these purple ribbons. Many of them were her Elena Frick-Shamji's friends and colleagues. Uh, you know, every time I cover this in court and I tweet about it, I get a lot of doctors retweeting. She was involved with the Ontario Medical Association. She was active and, and well-known um, in the medical community. And so a lot of people are going to take the stand in an effort to try and uh, persuade the judge 
to not give him a lenient sentence as far as parole and eligibility. Uh, and so May 8th is the date that it's set for. It's going to take a few days after victim impact statements. The Crown and the defense will be uh, then submitting what they think would be appropriate sentences. And from there, the judge will have to decide exactly uh, when Dr. Mohammed Shamji will be eligible for parole. Of course, uh, you know, that, of course, is always upsetting, as, as we saw, you know, with the MacArthur trial. Yes, he got, uh, he got, you know, he was charged with one count of first, or, sorry, he was convicted of one count of first-degree murder. He's eligible for parole after 25 years. In that case, the judge gave a concurrent sentence. So, he, right. you know, he will be eligible at 92. The question is, when, we're, when will Dr. Shamji be eligible? He's now 43 years old. Let's say he gets 18 years. Uh, you know, he could be back on the streets at the age of say, 59, because he's already been in custody for two and a half years. And uh, two and a half years, as we know, counts as five because of pretrial um, and and pre-conviction. Catherine, thank you for this. And and I just quickly want to talk about Catherine, uh, who is the best crime reporter in the city. And Catherine, you you know, you, you, you talk to these people and it takes, it must take an emotional toil on you, just even this. And then I want to just quickly pay a, a little bit of this, which is your ongoing coverage in the MacArthur case, which you mentioned. The award goes to Global News Toronto. And that is audio from uh, this last weekend, where Catherine picked up an RT DNA award for continuing coverage because of her MacArthur uh, coverage and the number of interviews you have done. Congratulations to you, Catherine. Yeah, and and it is trying. I have to say this this particular trial, I was dreading dreading the last week, knowing that this little girl was going to have to testify as a mother of a daughter, two daughters, myself, uh, you know, and I, I, all I could think about was these poor children and the trauma they've been through. And hopefully uh, the fact that they don't have to testify, you know, that she did have to go through a prelim. So that's the other aggravating factor is Dr. Dr. Shamji didn't spare his daughter that she had to testify uh, once already um, to make sure there was enough evidence to proceed to trial. And, I, and my heart breaks for, for, for this family and the friends of Dr. Elena Frick-Shamji. As I know, many people in the city felt ho- horrible uh, hearing the details of this case as they came out in the last couple of years. All right, Catherine McDonald, thank you so much. And you can see Catherine's report tonight on Global News beginning at 5.30 and, of course, simulcast on this radio station beginning at 6 p.m. Just like Justin Trudeau, uh, if you say something about us that we don't like... I'll sue you! That is precisely what we will do. We, well, we might not sue you, but we're going to send you a letter and say we're thinking so about it. So sue me! And then Andrew Shear just says... So sue me! Do it, homie. Come at me. So that, of course, making news over the weekend, and that'll... Yes, our go. lawyers are damn good! <laughs> It all depends on how good the lawyer is at the end of the day. Uh, time for a little rip and read here on the uh, Mighty Alan Carter program where we just take some wire copy and uh, without having pre-read it, I'm just going to rip and read it. Here we go. Uh, this from New York. People over age 60 whose brains were zapped with a mild electrical current showed improvements in a form of memory in a new study. In fact, they began performing well as well as people in their 20s. Now, the study focused on working memory which is the ability to hold information in mind for a matter of seconds as you perform a task. Scientists say it's crucial for things like taking medications and planning. These results reported Monday in the journal Nature Neuroscience. In the study, participants had to remember a detailed image of an object for three seconds in order to judge whether another image was identical or slightly different. So, you know, like one of those matchy games. Then the electrical current was sent through the scalp to improve communication between two areas of the brain. 
So a little electrical current on the noggin, apparently a good thing. To Washington, where a new study finds that the Earth's glaciers are melting much faster than scientists thought. They're losing 369 billion tons of snow and ice each year, more than half of that in North America. The world's glaciers are shrinking five times faster now than in the 1960s, and that loss is accelerating the melting, a result of global warming, and it's adding to rising sea levels, according to the study. That study is in Monday's journal Nature. To Tulsa, Oklahoma, where police have arrested a man who they say stole an empty school bus and took it for a joyride. Police say the Tulsa public school bus was stolen early Monday when the driver went into a gas station, left the bus running. The Tulsa World reports that a man told officers he decided to steal the bus after seeing an anti-texting and driving sign on the bus that said, drop it and drive. Police say the man told officers that he, quote, dropped what he was doing and drove off in the bus. The man later radio dispatched to tell him where he would leave the bus. Police arrested him on complaints of auto theft and driving without a license. Baltimore Council pressures embattled mayor to resign from Baltimore now. Baltimore City Council calling on Mayor Catherine Pugh to resign as investigators probe lucrative deals she negotiated to sell her children's book series. Now that's a different kind of scandal. I'm just... I'm just hawking some Caillou. That's all I'm doing. The current lineup of counselors has signed a two-sentence letter urging the mayor to step down, taking the only step it can do is to pressure her out of office amid the growing political scandal. You remember when Rob Ford was mayor, we actually had the power in the city to take away, uh, or at least counselors on city council had the power to vote, and they did take away pretty much all of his power, and he was... Really nothing more than mayor in name for the latter portion of his term. To Cape Canaveral, where spacewalking astronauts are tackling battery and cable work outside the International Space Station. This is the third spacewalk in just two and a half weeks for the station crew. NASA astronaut Anne McLean and Canadian astronaut David Saint-Jacques got an early start this morning. They need to complete battery swap-outs that began last month and lay cable. The new cabling will provide a backup power circuit for the station's Canadian-made robot arm and expand wireless communications, you know, so they can get Wi-Fi. Uh, the battery works, or it involves reinstalling two old batteries. One of the new six lithium-ion batteries doesn't work, and so the outdated pair made of nickel-hydrogen need to go back into the slot. NASA says it will send up another battery. Like, that's not quite the same deal as, you know, going for some AAAs at the convenience store. To Westchester now, is it Westchester, Philadelphia? No, no, Pennsylvania. PA. Is PA Pennsylvania? It is. That's my home state. Yep, Pennsylvania. So what you're saying is that, Alan Garter, you know nothing. You you know nothing about that. Well, in Westchester, PA. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Thank you. Two thieves who snatched a lion, pardon me, snatched a statue of a lion from outside a home in a Philadelphia suburb, had a change of heart after police posted surveillance video of the heist. The statue was taken from a Westchester residence on Wednesday, but by Friday, police posted a video of the thieves returning it. They also left behind some flowers and a card. 
Police say it was a smart move to return the property, and the owner is grateful. There's your Rip and Read segment there on the Alan Carter Radio Program. One other thing I want to talk about real quick is, and this is a little self-serving, I admit, a little boastful, but at the end of the day, if you do not toot your own horn, your horn goes untooted, I believe. So let me toot, if, if you don't mind. Uh, on the weekend, I was super proud. That's terrible grammar, but proud nonetheless to pick up a radio and television news director's award for commentary. Now, commentary in this particular case doesn't always mean opinion, but this is a particular piece that uh, picked up a little hardware, a little piece that I put on the air during the provincial election in 2018 about the ghosts that haunted the current leaders on the campaign trail. Here's a little little piece from it. Political leaders are being haunted. Ghosts. Each has the ghost of a previous leader following them on the campaign trail. NDP Premier Bob Ray, in power between 1990 and 1995, is the NDP boogeyman. Boogeyman. I just like saying that. Uh, So thank you so much to the Academy. I would like to thank uh, my mother, my father, my high school theater teacher, and, and I'll be here for the next 45 minutes until they play me out. Speaking of playing me out, it is time to move on to that other job I have. And that is anchoring the global newscast beginning at 5.30, where you can see, you know, pieces like the one that I just played for you, that one a little hardware. Did I mention that? And a little bit of tooting, more tooting. <laughs> We've had a lot of bum talk this hour. Uh, if you were with us at the beginning of the hour, we were talking about the fact that you can get anesthetic to have your bum checked. Alan! Alan! <laughs> Alan! All right. Alan! Quit Alan! saying bum! Time to go. Thank you so much for joining me on the Mighty Radio program. And again, a reminder, I'm on TV beginning at 5.30 tonight and then simulcast right on this radio station beginning at 6 p.m. Thank you for joining me here on the radio program. I'm back again tomorrow for, at noon for more fun. And until then, Premier Doug Ford, I'm just, what, that whole bum thing, if anything came out of your bum, what would that be made of? Everything is made of carbon. Everything is going up. You know nothing, Jon Snow.